All right, good morning, church. Good to see all of you here this morning, and any guests who are with us this morning joining us, it's a joy to have you here. We're going to study God's Word. I want to thank our live stream friends out there. We're going to study God's Word together, so if you would, open your Bible to Psalm 93, and we're going to finish up this little uh, sort of mini-series that we've had in the book of Psalms these past few weeks, wrapping up with what does it look like for us to live a spiritually flourishing life in Christ and how the Psalms direct us to this evergreen uh, opportunity where we can always have leaves, always have fruit on the tree because we're, we're planted in God's word near the life-giving streams of his presence. So I hope that it's been encouraging to you already uh, these past couple weeks and we're wrapping up with doxology, the source of flourishing. There is a short text in Psalm 93, but there's a lot to get to before we read it. If you would join me, I'm going to lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time of worship. We, we humble ourselves now before your self-revealing word. And we recognize we don't need uh, hype, we don't need gimmicks, we, uh, we don't need quick fixes. What we need is for your glory to shine out from the pages of your word and for the Holy Spirit to bring truth home to our hearts so that we are transformed. It's what your church has needed throughout the ages, it's what we need here again this morning. Father, I... Um, I pray for dear friends and brothers, pastors of churches around the city. I think of my friend Joel Brooks and Thomas Beavers and Corey Varden and Bart Box and Bob Flayhard and others. And pray that their time in the word this morning would be fruitful. Those congregations, those churches around our city would be built up in their faith this morning. Uh, you would bring great blessing and great strength to those bodies. And, and now, even as we turn our attention to your word, we pray the same for us, that you would make us strong by your word and by your spirit here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 93, verse one. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, enveloped in strength. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. Your throne has been established from the beginning. You are from eternity. The floods have lifted up, Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. Greater than the roar of a huge torrent, the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is majestic. Lord, your testimonies are completely reliable. Holiness adorns your house for all the days to come. You know, I think an interesting phenomenon probably that runs through history is uh, that you don't have to tell the kids in the house where to run when they have nightmares, where, where to run when they're afraid. They, they know where the room is with the big people, right? They know where to find that room, and somehow when the nightmare comes, they just instinctively run in that direction. They push the door open or they're knocking on the door, right? I, we had an interesting experience. So I, I grew up at 5101 Elmwood Parkway for most of my childhood. It's just a little house in the suburbs on the western side of New Orleans. And uh, when Paula and I got married, my mom was renting that house out, 
And after we got married, and about 10 years into our marriage, the house came available, and we bought the house that I grew up in. So now my kids are growing up in 5101 Elmwood Parkway on the west side of New Orleans, which the interesting thing was, when we were moving into the house, my first instinct was to go to my room, right? It, which is not the one at the end of the hall. The, end, the one at the end of the hall, that's dad's room. That's dad and mom's room. That's where, that's where they're at. But it's like, no, that's, I get that room now, right? Which means that in the middle of the night, they're coming to the end of the hall, and I'm the one who's waking up. Paula, we're, we're the ones who are being awakened in the middle of the same hall, but the, the, the change in roles in that particular context, right? Well, Psalm 93, you know, it's, it's basically telling, it has this purpose, this pastoral purpose. It's not simply to fill our heads with theology proper. It wants to ground us. It wants to make the believer secure. It wants to show Christians where to run when we're afraid. It wants to show us the, the, the direction to the room at the end of the hall where God is and all of his size and immensity and power and goodness. That's where he is in Psalm 93 saying, I'm going to open the door for you so that in the middle of the night when you're afraid, you know where to find the Lord. That's what Psalm 93 is doing. When sin gets the upper hand, when suffering closes in, Psalm 93 is here for us. It has that purpose for believers. So three truths that we see in this text that lead us to spiritual flourishing and security in the Lord, even in the midst of hardship. The first is this, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Just look down in your text again. Verse one, the Lord reigns. So it front loads the big idea. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. I love that idea of clothed in majesty. He, he is robed. He's enveloped in strength. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. So notice something that I'm hoping we're going to take away from here in our notes. In Scripture, God's sovereignty doesn't lead to theological debates. It leads to worship. That's the function of how God's sovereignty is pressed in in the pages of Scripture. You think about a classic text like Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is, is the uh, God is our refuge and our strength, the very present help in time of need. It's a classic text for embattled people of God. It was the text that Martin Luther, when, they were, when the heat was on in the 16th century and lives were on the line and people were dying and being martyred for their faith, and when the heat was on, Martin Luther would turn to Philip Melanchthon, his sidekick, and he would say, let us rise, Philip, and sing the 46th, which was their way of saying, in a moment like this, when it feels like the ground is shifting beneath us, what are we going to sing? We're going to sing, be still and know that I am God. And after that word of be still, it's not just be still, hey, just because I told you so. It grounds the stillness of the believer in the sovereignty of God. It says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And then it says, the Lord of hosts, that sovereign one is with us. That's the refrain of Psalm 46. Is sort of the chorus of that song. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. We need that God. That's, that's the believer finding their way to the end of the hall where, where God is in all of his strength and wisdom and sovereignty. God of Jacob is our refuge. So here's the truth. You think about this. The Lord reigns. That's not just a, that's not just a truth front-loaded in Psalm 93. It's, it's the banner over the exodus the massive redemptive event in the entire Old Testament was when God saved his people from under the thumb of Pharaoh, right? 
In a word, what was God's message to Pharaoh through Moses? In one sentence, Moses shows up in the court of Pharaoh and he says, so the Lord reigns and you've got his people and he wants his people back. And Moses basically says, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. Because we, we, got, we got gnats, we got flies, we got cow tipping events like you've never seen before. Uh, because, and God can do this all day. He's not gonna get tired. He can do this all day because the Lord reigns. And, and, and in case you haven't heard, that's this sovereign, glorious God. That's who you're messing with. You've got your hands on his people. He wants those people. Your best move is let the people go. <laughs> that's the best ending for this story. It's not just the the banner hanging over the massive redemptive event in the Old Testament called the Exodus. The Lord reigns is the song all of creation will sing at Christ's return. So as Christians, we know in the fullness of time, God sent his son, the eternal son of God became man, right? We celebrate that all throughout the month of December. We're gonna think about the incarnation, the advent, the significance of Christ's arrival as Messiah. And we know the story, right? One of the earliest Christian hymns that was sung by the early church and it's recorded and put inside Philippians chapter two. The early church sang the story of the incarnation but they didn't just sing about his descent into utter and abject humiliation. They sang about his ascent to cosmic exaltation on the other side. In case you're not familiar, here are the words from that great Christ hymn of the first century. The Apostle Paul wrote, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. That, friends, That is describing what happens on the most reverence-charged day in human history. When the curtain comes down on history as we know it, everyone will be on bended knee before the Lord Almighty, saying together in unison, Jesus Christ is Lord. And Psalm 93 wants to provide for us an added perspective. The Lord reigns. He's the Lord, Jesus is and the Lord reigns. He's sovereign over all things. The the psalm really goes on to say more about this reign of God. Look down in verse two. Your throne has been established from the beginning. You are from eternity. So it's using this, this metaphor of God's sovereignty which is the throne of God. Scripture talks about this throne. It tells us more and more about this throne. So what's the wellspring? What's the foundation? The wellspring by which God rules, Psalm eighty nine fourteen. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. What's the reach of God's throne and God's rule? Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So that's the the scope, it is a total scope. It is an absolute rule over all, and what's the endurance of God's throne? Psalm 45, six, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So in our text, right here, in verse two, when it says your throne has been established from the beginning, you are from eternity, put simply, 
the psalmist is saying, as long as God has been, God has reigned. In other words, his sovereignty is coextensive with his being. As long as he has existed, he has ruled, and he has existed forever. That's why he says, your throne is from of old. You are all the way back there from eternity. You think about what happens in books like Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah is the mouthpiece of God, and he's talking to Israel, and Israel is tempted to put their trust in the other nations, the gods of the other nations, and God says, let me set up a little test to see if their gods are the real God. I'm gonna give you a litmus test for what the real God is. He says, ask your so-called rival gods if they can do this. Ask them if they know the end from the beginning and if they have absolute sovereignty so that all their purposes, Isaiah 46, verse 10, all their purposes are fulfilled. Because if they have that ability, if you can see if that God candidate can do that, then that God candidate gets to be called God. In other words, if the God candidate has sovereignty, then it gets to be called God. It deserves the name God. Because it goes on to say in Isaiah 46, God says through Isaiah, when I call a bird of prey from the east, the bird of prey comes and it doesn't come from the west, it comes from the east. And when I say it's time for a kingdom to fall on Tuesday morning, the kingdom doesn't fall on Monday and it doesn't fall on Tuesday afternoon. It falls on Tuesday morning because I'm the Lord. And Psalm 93 says, the Lord reigns. His throne is established from of old. There's no moving his throne. Look, in the grand scheme of things, we need to hold on to this in our lives because I'm tempted to believe I'm sovereign. We confuse our roles, right? I'm tempted to believe I'm sovereign. I'm not sovereign. Luck is not sovereign. Fate is not sovereign. America is not sovereign. The devil is not sovereign. Mother nature is not sovereign. God alone is sovereign, which means God alone is God. He deserves that name, him and him alone, right? Psalm 93 presents this eternal God who sits on an eternal throne and God's people needed to hear this then and we need to hear it now, why? Because of point number two, the floods roar. The floods roar, look at verse three. So we've just talked about God's sovereignty and here we are in verse three. The floods have lifted up, Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. The the floods, the sea in in ancient Near East was considered that, that chaos, that chaotic force of evil that's too powerful for any human being to rein in. No one can handle the sea at high tide, right, the forces of the ocean, right? Well, you think about the, the story of this people who would have read this psalm originally, and they had an embattled history, 2,000 years of embattled history from Abraham all the way to the arrival of Jesus Christ. That's a 2,000 year window that you're looking at, and most of it is awful. Most of it is filled with pain and trouble and stress and, and battle, right? So they're sojourners for a while. God calls Abram. They sojourn for a while. Then they end up camping out, right? They put down roots in Egypt. That goes well for about five minutes, right? And then Egypt turns around, gets a new look on things and says, we're gonna make you our slaves. That's the new arrangement here. They make them their slaves for hundreds of years. Then God sends Moses. They saves them out from 
the slavery in Egypt, brings them out into the wilderness, leads them into the promised land. That's good for a little while, leads to the period of the judges, which is one of the worst periods in the entire Old Testament history, right? So the period of, ju- of the judges fades away. Then here comes the period of the monarchs, the period of the kings. Saul gets on the throne. It's a bumpy start. Saul gets on the throne, and then Saul is evicted from the throne. And then here comes King David. We finally got ourselves a righteous king. God chose this king, and now he rules for 40 years. And then his son Solomon rules for 40 years. And both of those are basically peacetime, stable reigns. And I hope you didn't blink, because that 80 years, those are the good years. That's the golden era of 2,000 years of beleaguered and embattled history. And right after Solomon, everything unravels, right? The kingdom is divided. It's no longer a monarchy. It's a divided kingdom, north and south. The north goes into exile under Assyria. The south goes into exile under Babylon. Just horrific stories unfolding there. And then from that point on, it's just who's occupying us today? Who's wearing the guns? Who's, Who's... Who's in charge, right? Is it Babylon? Because it was them yesterday, but it'll be Persia tomorrow. It'll be Greece on Thursday, and it'll be Rome after that, right? It's just this change of powers. You can sense just the, the people kind of top, topsy-turvy, unsettled and insecure. All of that, just th- that quick review, that was just a flyover of the, the whole Old Testament. All of that just leads us to say What? These people, the people of Israel, they knew what the flood sounded like. They knew the flood waters of suffering and difficulty and despair, right? The sovereignty of God, hold on to this, is not a challenge for Christians to affirm when all is well. Sovereignty of God is not a challenge for Christians to affirm when all is well. Our, um, our sons attend a, a small college in Louisville. The undergrad is like a thousand people. It's a very small college, so the whole community is very tightly bound together. And we got a call from one of our sons a few weeks back. Uh, actually, it was election night on Tuesday night. Got a call, and, uh, and my son Will tells me on the other side of the phone, he says, Dad, um, Nick Challies died tonight on our campus. And this is the son of Tim Challies, who's a well-known Christian author, uh, a dear brother in Christ. And he said, Nick Challies, they were out playing games just to get their heads off of things. Everybody was stressed, and so he just thought, let's go out and let's play some games. Well, he was laying on the ground, Nick was laying on the ground, and they just thought he was goofing off, and they walked over there, and he had had seizures, and he was no longer able to be recovered. And this whole community at the school just buckled in that moment, and Tim Challies, his father, posted the very next morning this letter, these words, my son, my dear son has gone to be with the Lord. In all the years I've been writing, I have never had to type words more difficult, more devastating than these. Yesterday, the Lord called my son to himself, my dear son, my sweet son, my kind son, my godly son, my only son. Nick was playing a game with his sister and fiance and many other students when he suddenly collapsed, never regaining consciousness. Students, paramedics, and doctors battled valiantly but could not save him. He's with the Lord he loved, the Lord he longed to serve. We have no answers to the what or why questions. And you read this family's experience and what are you hearing as I read those words? You're hearing the floods lift up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, their pounding waves all around, right? And some of you here this morning, 
you're hearing the floods. The floods of infertility or loneliness or depression, sin that's too strong for you or a diagnosis you weren't ready for, right? The floods have this way of surging into our lives unbidden, unsolicited, and here they are, and now what are we gonna do because we're drowning, right? And we just feel this guilt and shame and it's packed on us. Suffering is screaming in our ears and God gives us a gift and it's called Psalm 93. He says, I'm gonna give you words to say no truth settles a heart in turmoil more than this. God is in control. God is in control. Here, here's how that letter that Tim Challies wrote ended with these words. He writes, yesterday, Eileen and I cried and cried until we could cry no more, until there were no tears left to cry. Then later in the evening, we looked each other in the eye and said, we can do this. We don't want to do this, but we can do this. This sorrow, this grief, this devastation, because we know we don't have to do it in our own strength. We can do it like Christians, like a son and daughter of the Father who knows what it is to lose a son. So yeah, the floods are loud, the floods are tumultuous and noisy, but that's not the last word in this psalm. This psalm began with hope, then it talked about real pain in a real world, and then it's gonna end with hope. The third point is this, the Lord is greater. The Lord is greater, look at it with me. Verse three, the floods have lifted up, Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice, the floods lift up their pounding waves, greater than the roar of a huge torrent and the mighty breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is majestic. So now the whole psalm comes into view. The Lord reigns, the floods roar, and the Lord is greater. Mightier than the floods, mightier than the roar of the waves, the Lord on high is mighty. That's the gift that God is giving us in Psalm 93, the gift of security, feet grounded, feet on a rock in a topsy-turvy world, right? Let me, let me just say something about the, the structure and organization of the book of Psalms as a whole. So these Psalms that we have here, 150 Psalms, they're arranged originally in five collections. They're sort of five mini hymnals that make up the big book of Psalms. So just to see that, look, flip back, hold your place here, flip back to Psalm 90. And you should see in your Bible an indication that says book four, which covers Psalm 90, that's a collection that involves Psalm 90 through Psalm 106. So that's our Psalm. We are at the beginning, toward the beginning of book four, and this is, if you read them all in succession, this is where the dominant note and theme and tone of the Psalms begins to change. It begins to move from the minor key to the major key. There's lift in these Psalm 90s, moving into the Psalm 100s. So the Psalms are gathered, you got this in your notes, into five books in order to tell a story. They're not collected and arranged in chronological order. You'll have, a, you'll have a Psalm of David followed by a Psalm of Moses who lived 500 years before David. So they're not arranged chronologically. They're arranged in this order to tell a story. And what's the story? Well, Reggie Kidd 
an author and a scholar in his outstanding book with one voice and he, he does a statistical analysis of the progression of themes that move all the way through the five books of the Psalter. And here's his finding and his conclusion. He writes, the organization of the Psalter reminds us of a pilgrimage through which God is taking his people. The Psalter helps to tell the story of a journey from suffering to glory and from lament to praise. So just think about it for a second if you're familiar with the Psalms. Psalms begins with these two introductory chapters, Psalm 1 and 2. They introduce the whole book. They, they, they fly over the entire book of 150 Psalms. And then you get to chapter 3, verse 1. And from that point all the way to the end, there's this progression. And the progression is this. Gut-wrenching anguish gives way to global adoration. Gut-wrenching anguish right there in chapter 3, verse 1, gives way to global adoration in the last verse of Psalm 150, right where out come the trumpets and the horns and the cymbals and everything that has breath is going to start praising him beginning now, right? There's this global song of praise heard around the world in the presence of God, his covenant people rejoicing in him. What's the source How do you get your feet on a solid rock? What's the source of our flourishing in Christ? In Psalm 93, it's this. God is sovereign and he keeps his promises. Those are two massive bedrock truths. God is sovereign and he keeps his promises. Be comforted, verse one through four, because God is sovereign. Be comforted, verse five, because God will keep his promises. Look at verse five. Lord, your testimonies are completely reliable. We can trust what you say. You have all the power and you never lie to your people. Your word is reliable. When when COVID first hit, uh, you know, everybody was sent home. Schools are out, work is out. Everybody's at home. Everybody's cooped up at home and we're all driving each other crazy, right? And one thing that I started to notice that was, was new at that time was if you walked outside, um, there were a lot more neighbors outside. Everybody decided, we're taking it outside. We're, we're gonna kill each other if we stay inside. We're going outside. And people just started going outside. Our son, Will, he grabbed his guitar one day and he went outside and he set up a blanket and he just started strumming the guitar and just singing quietly, you know, these songs. And, and the next thing you know, the the lady who lives next door, our neighbor, she comes out and she says, do you mind, please don't stop. And she unfolds a blanket 30 feet away and she's just listening to him sing, right? Everybody's just doing strange things. We've never done that before, but it's happening now because everybody's trying to cope with a new reality. And and one of our favorite artists, some of our favorite artists were all kind of, because their tours were down, they weren't gonna be traveling anywhere, so they were still trying to get music out there and trying to encourage people. So one of our favorite artists is Ben Rector. And Ben Rector, on one day, he just walks over, he he grabs his iPhone and he walks over to his piano And he sits down and he records himself just playing very simply. Now he can rock it. I mean, he's got all these skills and stuff, but all he does is just sits down and plays this familiar melody. It's just very simple, not adorning it, nothing elegant. 
written in 1674, the church has been singing this melody for 350 years. I'm going to put the words up. Let's sing it together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Lift your voice. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I'm going to sing that again. I'll invite the band to come out. Think about these truths and sing them again together. Praise God from Why would the church sing that since 1674? And I think the answer is this, that when you put your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, your sins are forgiven, and you become the child of God. And those words are reminding believers and have been reminding believers for 350 years that praise is the way we find ourselves to the end of the hall. It's the way we find ourselves to the room where God is, where he reigns in all of his power and his goodness and his sovereignty, and it stabilizes the life of the believer. Look, think about this. A small God makes shaky believers, and a big God holds shaky believers.